In some ways, it, it was a, it was a very personal connection that took me really deep into the disability rights movement in Ukraine. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I am here with LT. Lara, how are you? Doing great. We're in the middle of the semester. We've made it through COVID times. We've made it through a winter storm. We can handle anything at this point. We stare at each other twice a week, actually three times a week in our shared classes. It's too much. I know. I'm you drawing the line. before that you like my like 8 a.m. hair. That's gone now. But <laughs> I miss it dearly. So we have Dr. Sarah Phillips from Indiana. Dr. Phillips is anthropologist, and today we talk about her work on Chernobyl, on the history of disability, on women's studies in Ukraine, and HIV. We also end on Kurt Ronnick. Yeah, so if you if you appreciate a good pivot from a couple of topics to topics, uh, stick around and listen to the episode. So funny. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Phillips, welcome to the show. We've been hoping to have you on for some time, so this is uh, very exciting. I am really excited, too. Thank you so much, Tom, and thank you, Lara. Of course. So you're joining us from Bloomington right now? I am in Bloomington working from home, uh, looking out on a pretty nice day. Actually, spring is here, so it's truly blooming ton. Yeah, I'm sure that wordplay gets a lot of use this time of year. So obviously you've done a ton of work on Ukraine and the Soviet space in general, focusing on anthropology. How did you come to anthropology? How did you come to Ukraine? What is your origin story? Oh, my origin story. Okay, okay. Well, yes. You know, I think like many scholars of my generation, and I finished my undergrad from Wake Forest University in 1993, many of us thought that we would go on to study Russia. I had done study abroad at Moscow State in 1993, and I did some preliminary data collection on the Russian feminist movement that I thought would become my dissertation topic. But I had the opportunity, actually, when I had just started uh, my PhD program at Illinois, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, I had the opportunity to go to Kiev one summer and study the Ukrainian language. And that just kind of did it for me. I fell in love with the city. There were so many fascinating conversations for an anthropologist going on about national identity and who are we as Ukrainians. And I, I really enjoyed learning the Ukrainian language, actually, after having done quite a bit of Russian. And so that sort of put me on the path in Ukrainian studies, which was the path that I was on for, gosh, um, 20 years. So was there sort of a wave of scholars kind of leaving Russian studies after the end of the Cold War, where it was just we can enter these Eastern European states that haven't been looked at at all? So was there just a huge market at that time when you were graduating school? Yeah, I think that's right, Tom. I think that is actually a, a good kind of synopsis of, of what happened. I mean, I think a lot of people got into learning about the region via Russia and then we're able to kind of continue on and explore, you know, other geographical areas, other 
other languages. There was really, I would say, right there in the in the mid nineties, there really was a flourishing of people moving on to to think about and study Ukraine. One of my colleagues put it kind of cynically. He said, "Well, you know, for Ukrainian studies, the lines were shorter." So it was kind of like, you know, the the grants were a little more, you know, generous. It was, you know, a little bit easier to sort of get to the front of the line uh, to study Ukraine. And that's probably true, you know, for Baltic studies, for example, around the same time. Yeah, I think people would be surprised to know that like academics like don't like waiting in line either. You know, there, <laughs> there are definitely, you know, the better trucks to eat yeah. from. When you're coming to Ukraine in that period, I know you did some early work on Chernobyl. Sort of the hot topic to study. That was kind of the first thing that jumped out. Yeah, it really was. Again, in the mid-90s, you know, the Chernobyl disaster happened in 86. And so I was surprised when I went for the first time in 95 and people were still talking about Chernobyl. I mean, it it was very much top of mind for my friends in Kiev. It informed how they were thinking about their health and informed how they were thinking about the food that they were eating, the kind of gastronomical choices, you know, that they were making. So I was surprised. I was like, 10 years ago, that's ancient history. But, you know, as we know, you know, the half-life of of Chernobyl, both physically, but also emotionally, psychologically, is is much, much longer. So, so yeah, I, I was fascinated by how people were really looking for alternative kind of healing methods. People were really experimenting with lots of I don't know, you might call them new age, non-traditional kind of healing techniques that they felt were appropriate for folks who had soaked up a lot of radiation, were um, experiencing, you know, myriad health problems that they attributed to Chernobyl. And there was kind of a real official, a rejection of official medicine. Um, and people were really kind of trying to be more creative with their with their health practices. So I thought that I would actually write my dissertation on that. I got a, I squeezed out a couple of good articles on Chernobyl and health and healing and food. But I uh, sort of did a 180 while I was in the field doing my uh, dissertation research and, um, and and took my my study in a different direction. Actually, I had been interviewing quite a few women who had gotten involved in the anti-nuclear movement, who were involved in kind of um, initiatives to protect children's health after Chernobyl. And spending a lot of time with these women made me very interested in the really important roles that women in Ukraine were playing in civil society. And so I sort of, you know, pivoted from the, the Chernobyl topic specifically to looking at the work that these these and other women were doing in their communities, fighting for health justice, you know, economic justice, all kinds of justice initiatives then in the mid to late 90s. So in, in light of that research, I'd love to dive in on this a little bit. You, you did do the study which got published in 2008 where you followed, you mentioned 11 female NGO leaders in like this post-socialist Ukraine atmosphere to not only explore the effect of the social activism that they were going through, but to also explore uh, the notion of differentiation. 
So first question, what is differentiation? And two, could you kind of walk us through your study and what you found at the end of it? Sure. Thank you for the question, Lara. So when I talk about differentiation in this context, I am really talking about how after the fall of socialism and as neoliberal kind of mores were being introduced to Ukraine and other post-socialist countries, how people's social worth was being defined in really specific terms and in very neoliberal terms. And so if people, you know, previously had thought about, you know, the, the worth of their contributions as, as citizens, as a more of a collective project, as something that was kind of more community, kind of community based and, you know, sort of in line with the socialist project, when that sort of fell apart and new ways of thinking about what it means to be a citizen, what it means to, you know, be a person, what it means to be an individual who is worthy of, you know, X, Y, and Z, sort of new criteria were, were developed for, for social worth. And what I found was, you know, people were being held to these neoliberal standards of, you know, individual accomplishment, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, being an independent citizen, not being dependent on the state and not being dependent on other people. And so the whole sort of, you know, socialist safety net, um, the whole kind of fabric that that people had been told they were entitled to as good Soviet citizens was really ripped apart. And so what I tried to show in, in my book and in following the lives of these 11 social activists was how many of them were actually grappling with that change and resisting that change, right? And trying to say, you know, we do want to be part of a community. We do think that it's important, you know, that citizens support one another. We do think that the state has certain obligations to us, you know, as members of particular um, marginalized groups, for example. And so that's how I tried to sort of think through this question of differentiation was citizens were being differentiated at the level of the new nation state and kind of sorted into deserving citizens, undeserving citizens, active citizens, passive citizens, that sort of thing. And so how does that sort of work move into the Ukraine protests of the Maidan movement? I know you wrote about the women's squad. How do you think that society developed different lines of gender protests compared to protests you'd see in a more neoliberal society or a society of more neoliberal history? That's I mean, that's a difficult that's a difficult question to answer. But I think you know, some similar phenomena were happening on the Euromaidan. And so people who have who have sort of looked at the roles that women played, right, in the Ukrainian revolution of dignity, talk about how, you know, at the beginning of, of the, the protests on the Euromaidan, uh, women were kind of relegated into these service roles, right? I mean, the idea was that, okay, you know, the woman's place is, you know, kind of in the canteen. The women are going to serve tea. They're going to make soup. 
this sort of thing, they're going to adhere to these traditional, you know, gender role stereotypes. But what was really important was that there were women who came forth and said, you know, actually, no, I'm not going to make the soup and the tea. I'm going to get up on the barricade. You know, I'm going to make sure that I know how to defend myself should there be, you know, some kind of physical altercation. And furthermore, I'm going to train others in self-defense. And so you had these women, you know, these women's brigades, the Genoche Sotnia, that really came together as women. And I think there was a really, it, it sent a powerful message to Ukrainian society about what kinds of roles women want to and should fill in this this revolution of dignity and going forward and hopefully right this this new kind of state state of affairs and i think that the maidan and the afterlife of the maidan actually opened up a space to de- debate these issues you know there was a uh, you know a night of women's solidarity on the maidan that was really important got a lot of press and there was just um, a wonderful roundtable. I think it was last week that University College London sponsored about 30 years of women in independent Ukraine. And, and these discussions are very much top of mind now still. And, you know, I think the reverberations of the revolution of dignity are, are still, still with us. I'm just thinking about those reverberations in Belarus, which is obviously possible to separate from a feminist revolution in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of these revolutions, you can they have the lens of feminism. That one was women tackling a patriarchal state, which I thought was just fascinating. Did you do any sort of through lines connecting that to Belarus? I mean, that's just such the natural, you know, end game of that. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Thomas. I mean, I haven't really been thinking in those terms and following it in those in those terms. I hope that others are. Because you're right, it's very inspiring what has been happening in in Belarus and the fact that women are at the forefront of that. So yeah, kudos, kudos to them. So you've also done quite a bit of work on health studies in Ukraine as well, which makes me think of, you know, the original interest, which is Chernobyl and how people are coping with, but specifically in HIV prevention. So how did you get to that topic in Ukraine? Yeah, thanks. It actually so there was there was there was a, a study sort of between the women's social activism study and getting to the HIV research that that is important, I think, to to talk about because it's very relevant. So as I was completing the book on women's social activists, I got very close and very involved in a, a few of the organizations that um, I had been studying for that first book. And they were focused on uh, disability rights in Ukraine. And so, again, to pivot, seems like my career has been a series of pivots, but I, I pivoted from women's social activism to still talking about civil society, still talking about NGOs, but focusing more on people with disabilities and the disability justice efforts that they had been involved in. And through that research, actually, I, I came in into contact with some groups that were working on HIV prevention, working on getting antiretroviral treatment to people who needed it in Ukraine and who were working in the realm of harm reduction. But really, I, I credit sort of the, the, the way that I jumped in with two feet to the HIV research with my colleague, Jill Acharzak who I have known for a long time. 
we were sort of the, the same generation of anthropologists coming up studying Eastern Europe and with an interest in health. We had met a lot at various conferences and things. Uh, and Jill was a PhD student of my, my dear colleague, uh, Michelle Rivkin Fish, who at the time was at the University of Kentucky. So anyway, Jill went on uh, to get a position in the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins, and she had seen an opportunity to apply for funding through the PEPFAR program to uh, study harm reduction HIV issues in Ukraine. Um, Jill had done her dissertation on HIV prevention efforts in Poland, but at that time she didn't have expertise in Ukraine. And so she said, you know, I've got the HIV piece, you've got the Ukraine piece, why don't we uh, you know, combine uh, forces and, and go for this grant. And so uh, we put together a team and we were successful in getting funding from the uh, National Institute on Drug Abuse for a five-year study, actually, in, in Ukraine on HIV prevention. And um, it was a really wonderful project. And I, again, Jill put together just a fascinating study because what she wanted to do was look at uh, the capacity of local organizations to put together their own harm reduction programs that were specifically tailored to the groups that they served. So injecting drug users, commercial sex workers, you know, men who have sex with men, whatever the target groups were of these groups, because what had happened for so long was that these harm reduction strategies were developed, you know, somewhere in Europe, packaged and just plopped down for these organizations to sort of take up whole scale. And of course, that was not working. And so she said, you know, anthropologists have been critiquing this model for so long, right? Anthropologists keep saying, well, interventions have to be tailored. You know, they're, not, they're never going to work. And so she said, you know, let's test this and see if it's true. Like, are, are the anthropologists right that these things would work better if they're tailored? culturally, socially, economically, whatever. And so she designed this fantastic study where eight NGOs around Ukraine who focus on HIV prevention were given kind of a toolkit that they could do with what they wanted to put together their own specific HIV prevention intervention and then take a series of clients through the intervention, do pre and post sort of behavioral interviews to see if people were changing their, you know, sexual behaviors, their injecting behaviors, and so on. And lo and behold, the study found that, oh, gee, yes, actually, if, if groups are empowered to develop their own interventions, for the particular populations, you know, with whom they're intimately familiar with, that they've worked with, you know, for decades now, yes, uh, those efforts will be more effective than some kind of prepackaged intervention. So it was a really fun project that I think did a lot of good. And it felt really, really good to know that the work we were doing had this really amazing, you know, applied aspect that would uh, go on and have an afterlife long after the, the project was over. 
that's it's challenging compared to Chernobyl, where you saw a lot of people who were totally abandoned by larger systems and had to, you know, adapt to their own devices. So, of course, that would still apply in 2008 when you have a similar sort of health crisis that is just going to be you. You have to follow the EU, the WHO rules, but that means nothing to a local community. So I also want to speak about um, your history of disability. That was, um, I think your most recent book was on that subject entirely. Uh, so uh, I'd love to hear more about how you came to that subject. There seems to be a little through line about, you know, how larger systems look at basically, you know, topics they don't want to deal with. And disability certainly comes to mind there. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I, I mentioned that it, you know, the, the project kind of grew out of the first project, but there was really, in some ways, it, it, was a, it was a very personal connection that took me really deep into the disability rights movement in Ukraine. One of the heroines from my first book was a woman, I can't remember what pseudonym I gave her <laughs> in the book. Her actual name is Nina. Uh, and so I, be- I became really close with Nina. And Nina had a son, his name's Misha, who had had a diving accident when he was a young man and he had broken his neck and was paralyzed. And so she, you know, in the 1980s, so right at this time when, you know, all these transitions were taking place in Ukraine, um, you know, she had dealt with trying to get him the medical attention that he needed, trying to get him the rehabilitation services that he needed, you know, the social services that, that he needed. And she just had all of these stories you know, how hard it had been, how hard she had worked, what a huge net kind of community network it had taken to to get Misha through this difficult time. And she had basically dedicated her life to helping others in the same situation. So she had had a pretty prominent career as an engineer. Um, When he was injured, she, you know, she quit her job, devoted herself to to taking care of, of, of him and the household. But she had this very kind of comsomal spirit, you know, we're in this together. And she had really created, she had created an NGO that got lots of donations from abroad. She had um, all kinds of wonderful ideas for how um, people in Misha's situation could themselves become ambassadors for the spinally injured community. Uh, And she had had a lot of contact, actually, with international activists. So there were um, spinal cord injured people who had come to Ukraine from Poland, from Sweden, from the Netherlands, from Canada, from the United States. And I was really fascinated in Nina's stories about how the strategies that were brought to Ukraine through these international networks were um, kind of reshaped and retooled when they hit the ground in Ukraine. And so it is, it's very similar actually to the the HIV kind of interventions that we were talking about. Um, And so that's really, it was Nina and and Misha and kind of um, following their story that got me embedded in the community because once I knew them, 
it was like, you know, I would just hang out at their house all day and, and do participant observation and people would come and go and the telephone calls would, you know, come and go day and night. And it was just, there was a huge network of people in the disability rights community that I got to know um, through these two, these two friends of mine. Um, and that's, you know, that's really um how it, how it played out. And that was a really long-term project because, you know, when I did, when I was doing my dissertation research, I had the luxury to spend two years in Kiev basically to, to do research for the, the dissertation on women's social activism. By the time I got going on the disability rights project, you know, I was a young professor, you know, you can't take a year off to do research anymore. So it was mostly like going back in the summers. I did get a few, you know, research grants to buy out my teaching from time to time, but it was, it was really data that I collected over about a 10 year period went into that second book on the disability rights movement. So I was also able to kind of trace an arc right in how things how things were changing in terms of accessibility in Ukraine in terms of even systems of transportation in terms of that kind of international back and forth with with these different groups coming in so it was it was really kind of a long-term picture that I was able to give uh, in that second book. Actually, touching on how, you know, things have changed and things have evolved recently. I'm also really like fascinated about your exploration of not only Ukraine, but, you know, the USSR's disability history, particularly in the framework of citizens trust in their healthcare system in this provision of medical things that they might need. And and so in in light of that, like, have you found any kind of profound differences between socialist, post-socialist states? in regards to healthcare, in regards to disability rights and how that's kind of been changing over the last few years? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good, that's a really great question. Yeah, for sure. And that has been really a huge focus actually of the disability rights movement in Ukraine is helping improve medical and rehabilitation services for people with all kinds of disabilities, but in particular people who experience disability as a result of a traumatic injury, for example. And there's a little bit of a tension there, Lara, because in in the West, there has been so much focus of late, and of late, I mean, you know, in the last few decades, um, on de-emphasizing disability as a physical medical problem and emphasizing disability as a social issue. So in other words, the social model of disability argues that it's not someone's um, you know, physical impairments that really disable them. It is a negative social environment. It's stigma, it's inaccessible, you know, built environments, it's negative social attitudes that are disabling. And, and all of that is applicable, of course, in the, in the Ukrainian case. But the problem is that 
sort of emphasizing this, you know, the social aspects of disability threatens to de-emphasize the fact that medical care is still substandard, right? That rehabilitation services have not been put in place. And so there's this, this tension between saying, you know, people with disabilities need Western style rehabilitation services. They need cutting edge medicine because in, in some ways, like in the global disability rights kind of conversation, the medical aspects of disability has been really muted. And so people, you know, the, the people that I know in, in Ukraine, you know, they're continuing to fight for better medical care. Um, better training for doctors, you know, better financing for different uh, branches of medicine. And some really important work has been done actually in terms of Western style physical therapy being brought to Ukraine. There were many initiatives kind of in the 90s that came through some Canadian immigre communities who sent West, again, Western style physical therapy kind of practice to Ukraine and helped implement that in kind of the, the, um, the educational system actually and established physical therapy as a profession in Ukraine in, in ways that were very different from how rehabilitation had been thought about in the, in the Soviet environment. Where do you see your research going next? Are we going to see more health tech research? Or is there going to be another pivot in your many pivots throughout your career? What can we expect next? Oh, so glad you asked the question, Tom. <laughs> As someone who's writing his thesis and has pivoted about five times, it is like relaxing <laughs> to hear your educational path. Yeah, well, so actually a couple of years ago, I, I did pivot to a, an entirely new project. I call it my cockamamie project uh, because it's so unlike anything that I've done before. So I'll just tell you a little bit about it. I became fascinated, and this makes no sense given all, given all the things that we just talked about in terms of health, gender, you know, social activism. I became fascinated with the fact that uh, the American writer Kurt Vonnegut, who is an Indiana native, by the way, uh, did grow up in Indianapolis, that in the 1970s and 1980s, he was probably the most popular American writer in the Soviet Union. So I am now embarked on this new project that is trying to sort of track Kurt Vonnegut's resonance with Soviet readers. Um, and it's, 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 an, it's a fascinating time period, you know, during Brezhnev's uh, stagnation. Um, I'm trying to learn uh, how Soviet readers read Vonnegut you know, what they saw in him, um, how and what kind of window was he into American culture for these Soviet readers. There's some really cool aspects of this in that, as you might imagine, uh, a lot of his readership were university students and younger people. So there was sort of this kind of a whole culture, kind of a counterculture that developed around Kurt Vonnegut and his kind of fantastical, you know, scenes, the unique uh, vocabulary and lexicon that he used in his uh, in his writings. Um 
And I've also become very fascinated with the woman who translated all of his books into Russian. Uh, She was a legendary translator who was almost 70 years old by the time she started translating Vonnegut in the late 60s. Um, Her name was Rita Wright Kavalyova. And uh, she led a fascinating life. Uh, Her translations are amazing. Translating Vonnegut, with whom she became very good friends and had a, a long and very rich correspondence, was kind of a second wind for her in her already storied uh, career as uh, a translator of English, French, German, British uh, literature in the Soviet Union. So I'm having so much fun with this project. And I'm working on a book about Kurt Vonnegut in the Soviet Union. It's taken me to archives far away and close at home. I've I've done research in the uh, Russian State Archives of Literature and Art in Moscow, um, where I looked through the translators' papers and, and many other Fondi at that um, archive, but also close to home. Kurt Vonnegut's papers are right here at Indiana University's Lilly Library. And uh, so it's a wonderful way to, to do research and not have to, you know, go halfway around the world to do it. So that, I mean, talk about pivots. That's like uh, a major pivot, but I'm just having the best time uh, meeting new colleagues, thinking about, you know, kind of historical and cross-cultural literary studies but also bringing an anthropological lens to it. That's so fascinating. I'm just thinking of Vonnegut in the Soviet Union, and he's almost like too subversive to really understand what he's subverting. So it'd be kind of hard to censor. It's like, I'm not even sure who we're criticizing here. What books in particular received the most popular? I'm thinking of Harrison Bergeron specifically, which is kind of like a critique of the capitalist understanding of communism. But was it Slaughterhouse-Five? What were the big hits? Yeah, so the first two books that were translated, and they both came out in 1970, were Slaughterhouse-Five and Cat's Cradle. And a lot of people, actually a lot of people that I interviewed talk about Cat's Cradle as their favorite Vonnegut book. There was just so much in there. The, the lexicon, you know, talking about the, the concept of the karas, uh, the dupras, the whole poof religion of volcanism people, you know, really got into. And so people, people read Vonnegut for his humor, talk about him as a great humanist. Uh, they talk about how in Vonnegut's novels, there are no real villains. I mean, that's debatable. Uh, Mother Night, by the way, did not get translated into Russian until after the fall of the Soviet Union. I, I think that that book definitely has true villains in it. But, you know, if you think about Slaughterhouse-Five, Cat's Cradle, Breakfast of Champions, which was the third book that was published in 1975 in Russian translation. The heroes are all lovable, right? I mean, they're kind of stupid sometimes, as one of my interviewees said. But but Vonnegut had a way of seeing the good in every person. And that's one thing that people talked about they really, really appreciated. But especially books like Cat's Cradle, which is really a rumination on 
sort of the, the limits of technology and what what science looks like without a moral compass, right? What what would happen if science was practiced with no morals? I mean, that, that was a profound question that people were asking themselves, you know, in the sort of nuclear age and thinking about those kinds of, of issues. But there was kind of something for everyone in 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 Vonnegut and it was it was easy to like lift you know sort of literary memes out of Vonnegut and sort of take those into your daily life and 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 use that as a basis for social relations in a way that was you know maybe not exactly subversive but it was it was it was funny it let you laugh at yourself you could, you know, kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, use sort of the Vonnegut vocabulary in your in your daily life to let people know that, you know, you're you're in on the jokes. So I, it's been such fun gathering these stories from people who, you know, were, were experiencing and reading Vonnegut during the, the, the kind of period of stagnation. Even Vonnegut in American culture, it's such an interesting niche where it's kind of like, like in my head, it's like hipster high schooler. And then like, if you're cool in college, That's what I would kid, say you as don't well. like, yeah, exactly. You're cool in college. You don't like Vonnegut. And then you're like a little smarter and you realize it's actually cool. It's, a, I don't know. It's such a weird yeah. thing to pin down. Yeah. Here in the U.S., you get the So It Goes tattoo. And mm-hmm. in the USSR, you get Kurt yeah. Vonnegut memes. Yeah. A little bit of, a little bit of both. Well, Dr. Phillips, thank you so much for your time. I'm really excited to read more about that. Something I've never <laughs> even pieced together. Great. Well, let's hope the book comes sooner rather than later. Well, we'll have to have it back on then. Until then, thank you okay. so much. We'll do. Thank you all so much. This was a lot of fun. Congratulations on a tremendous podcast. You guys are known. I mean, you know, it's like this is a big thing. I feel like it's a wonderful initiative that you you've done and you've got yourselves on the map. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you.